Welcome to Sports Spectrum, the sports and faith podcast that brings Jesus back into the conversation. Here's your host, Jason Romano. Welcome everyone to the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Compassion International. For $38 a month, you can release a child from poverty. We're talking about food, education, medical care, and vocational training. It's all done in Jesus' name, and it's all provided through the great work being done by Compassion International. You and I can make that difference by going to Compassion.com slash Sports Spectrum. That's the website. You'll see a list of children waiting to be sponsored, and here's your opportunity to to do just that for $38 a month. It's the best $38 spent every single month in the Romano household. We're so proud and thankful to be a part of Compassion International. Go to Compassion.com slash Sports Spectrum and sponsor a child today. Today's podcast is one of those stories that it's only happened about a handful of times for me on this podcast, interviewing different people where I just shake my head and say, man, this is just as crazy a story as you can imagine. And this is Damon West, who's joining us here on the podcast today. He's currently an author and a speaker, a former college quarterback at North Texas University. His book, The Change Agent, How a Former College Quarterback Sentenced to Life in Prison Transformed His World, was released March 19th. He's also writing a second book. He's co-authoring with John Gordon, and the book is called The Coffee Bean, A Simple Lesson to Create Positive Change, and that's releasing in late May, early June. But Damon's story is crazy. This guy... We're talking about the lowest of lows here in going to prison and being sentenced for 65 years for crimes that he committed, and then somehow being released on parole. He's still on parole today, and using his gigantic mess that he was in and changing it into a message that can really help and encourage and inspire people across the country. There's not much more to say except just listen to one of the crazier journeys you'll ever hear on this podcast, Damon West, author and speaker. Take a listen on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Damon, welcome to the program. Jason, man, thanks for having me on, brother. I'm so excited to be here today. So good to talk to you, Damon. you got a, an amazing story, a truly redemptive story that I look forward to diving into. But before we get into that, because there's so much to to get into with regards to what you've been through, even just in the past decade. Let's start with growing up. And I know I mentioned in the intro that you are a former college quarterback at North Texas. So my assumption is football played a large role in your life as a kid growing up. Sports in general played a large role in my life. You know, so we go back to, to where I grew I grew up in a town called Port Arthur, Texas. And I don't know if you're aware of Port Arthur and the Golden Triangle, the area where I'm from. But Port Arthur has a rich history of uh, athletics down there. My father, Bob West, was a sports writer here for like 50 years, and he's still alive. But, you know, Jason, he was the first sports writer in this part of Texas, this part of the South, to put a black athlete on the front page of a sports page. That year was 1971. That athlete was a guy named Joe Washington. And Joe Washington went on to play for the Oklahoma Sooners, wore the silver shoes. Uh, He went on to play for the Washington Redskins and the Baltimore Colts. Uh, He was a really good running back. But my dad's got a box of hate mail at home to prove what that decision was like. And, and I bring that up because Port Arthur is a predominantly African-American town. It's a refinery town, blue-collar town. Um, but when a lot of the white families were moving out of Port Arthur in the 70s and 80s, my parents dug in their heels and stayed. They wanted their kids, my two brothers and I, to go to go to integrated schools. And we did, man. And, you know, Jason, I was always one of the only white kids, summer parties, birthday parties, you know, sports teams, sporting events. But – I grew up in a giant melting pot of a city, and that's going to come in handy later on in my story. That and sports, you know, th- those were two big driving forces in my life. And so I grew up in Port Arthur, man, having this nice, knit little happy home where God's at the center of it. My mom, Jeannie, is a nurse. Um, but we're a family, and we have problems, man. Everybody's family's got issues, man. In 85, for example, Jason, I was nine years old. I came out and told my parents my babysitter had been molesting me. And, you know, this is childhood sexual abuse in the 80s, Jason. They didn't know as much about it back then as they know now. Yeah. So my mom sent me to talk to the family priest. We prayed about it a lot, and I went to counseling. But something inside that little nine-year-old went to a dark place, and that's when I started experimenting with putting chemicals in my body to change the way I felt. I started drinking when I was 10. I started smoking cigarettes when I was 10. I picked up marijuana when I was 12. Hmm. 
but I could throw a football like no other, man. I, God blessed me with a lightning bolt for a right arm. And this is Texas high school football. So you know football is really big down here. And uh, I got a lot of breaks cut to me in life because of my talent as an athlete and probably because of my father, his position as a sports writer. And, um, but, of course, that can't get you a scholarship, and that's what I ended up getting. I got a scholarship to play football at the University of North Texas. Um, went on to play ball at Denton and, and Denton, Texas, about six hours from where I grew up. And, and, you know, when I got to college, Jason, it was the first time I had been in an environment where my parents weren't around. That little community of Port Arthur wasn't around to kind of watch over me. Yeah. And, and the wheels kind of came off the wagon a little bit, Jason, to be honest with you, man. I, I really only cared about two things in college, and that was being the starting quarterback for my Division One college football team and uh, partying. And I did both really well. But I came to what I like to call a fork in the road day. And these are days, Jason, you've experienced them. I mean, everybody listening has experienced a fork in the road. A fork in the road is when life has knocked you down, man. You are standing there, you're getting back up, and you're dusting yourself off, and you got a choice to make. And, and your choices, man, do I make the right choice and go the right way, or do I make the wrong choices and go the wrong direction? But these days are pivotal. September 21st, 1996, probably one of the biggest forks in the road in my life up to that point. We're playing against Texas A&M. I'm the starting quarterback of my Division One team. I'm 20 years old, and, man, I think I have arrived. I'm a cocky, arrogant little kid. We go out there against Texas A&M, beautiful Saturday in College Station, Texas, and by the third play of the game, I'm down, man. I go down with a separated shoulder, and, and it's the last time I ever played college football. It's the last snap I ever took, the third play of that game. Hmm. And when I got up at that fork in the road in life, you know, Jason, I, I made a lot of wrong choices at that point. I was mad. I was angry at God. I was angry at the world. You know, why does my football career have to end? Giant pity party. And I started putting in the hardcore drugs. And this is what I talk about to these guys in the college football programs when I go talk. One of the worst things about what I've got going on in my life from when I'm 10 and start drinking and 12 and start smoking pot is that I've got a bad belief system. And a bad belief system tells you it's okay to do something that's not right. And the bad thing about a bad belief system is the longer you hold on to one, the harder they are to get rid of because the harder it is to retrain your brain to do the right thing. So my bad belief system going into this fork in the road was, hey, man, all I'm doing is drinking a little beer, smoking a little pot. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not even hurting myself. But I couldn't be more wrong because I'm playing with addiction at that point. And when I get to the fork in the road, now it's not just pot and booze. Now it's cocaine. It's ecstasy. It's pills. It's whatever can change my mood and change the way I feel. And, you know, uh, I, I really go off the edge a little bit there. And I, somehow, by the grace of God, I graduate in 1999 with a degree from the University of North Texas. And, and, uh, and I say somehow because really I was, I was kind of off the rails there, Jason. There's a transition there you mentioned from – Graduating in 99, even after playing your last game in 96, you somehow, as you mentioned, graduated from, from college in 99. But what were some of the, the difficult moments that you were walking through? And I guess even asking the question of, as you're walking through them, are you recognizing that they're difficult circumstances or are you just kind of going through it? Because I, I just speak from a, a child of an addict, of an alcoholic, my dad and struggling with him. You know, he recognized that he was in a pit, but he couldn't kind of get out of it. He couldn't stop drinking. He, could, he wanted he enjoyed the actual opportunity to drink, but knowing the consequences and he just couldn't get out of it. There was a cycle there. Was that starting to develop for you in college as you were still going through your college years at North Texas? Absolutely. I would say without a doubt, Jason, that cocaine um, was that that pit, that that frustration, because, you know, I started doing it, uh, partying to have a good time. You know, it was it was mood altering, mind altering and had a good time doing it. Um, but I found myself increasingly needing needing it more and more to function. Yeah. Um, you know, it starts out you something you do on the weekends, partying in college. Then you find yourself doing it on Monday and on Tuesday. And then you find yourself up for three days trying to write a research paper uh, up high on blow. And, and so um, the pool of addiction and the power of the stronger drugs that I'm putting in is, is taking a toll on me at this point. I mean, very, very much so in the sense when I told you, I, it's, it's, you know, it's only by the grace of God that I graduate college. Uh, you know, Jason, I, I, I can't consider myself fully present for some of that part of college because I was high a lot. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I didn't it's not like I graduated college and stopped doing it either. I mean, I kept on going, man, this train was moving and I was on it. 
Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, it's college is over and it's like, yeah, life's about to start. And yet you're kind of spinning out of control, right? Tell me about kind of post-college graduating and even talk about some of the emotions you're going through. Because my guess is if you're going to college to play quarterback as a scholarship athlete, that there's dreams and hopes of maybe making it to the NFL or even just playing professionally. And suddenly those are shattered and taken away from you. So a lot going on here. Absolutely, man. I put all my eggs in one basket, too, of playing college football, which is the dumbest thing in the world. I tell these guys all the time to learn from my stupid mistakes because that, 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 that's not right, especially if you're a five, ten and a half quarterback from Texas. And this is before anybody enjoyed watching five, ten and a half quarterbacks play ball. This is before <laughs> right. the short guys got a chance, man, which, which I always thought was, was an un- injustice. But, you know, I didn't ever think I'd play pro ball. I thought maybe I could play some semi-pro ball, Canadian League or something like that. I always thought I was good enough to start, and, and I thought I would be the starter at North Texas. Uh, but, of course, having those those dreams taken away uh, by injury dashed all of that. And, you know, I think trying to deal with unpacking all that, I put so much into playing sports. Not only that, man, Jason, but my dad and I, you know, my dad, my dad's a sports writer, man. We have a tremendous bond that comes together because of sports. And he would, he would even go and cover my games. You know, I played against starting against Arizona state in 96, uh, the, the week before A&M he's out, he's there at the game in Tempe, um, you know, covering the game, playing against Jake Palmer, man. These guys were number two in the nation that year, yeah. but it's something my dad and I had in common too. And when that was gone, that left a giant void in my life. And I filled that void. I, I like to call it an existential vacuum and it's not my term. I can't say I came up with it. I, I read it. A guy named Victor Frankel, yeah, uh, sure. tremendous author. And yeah, so he, he calls this the existential vacuum, and we fill it with either good things or bad things. And I filled my existential vacuum with with terrible negative things, and and that has a consequence on me. You know, I graduate college in '99, and I start working in the dot com industry for this company called Jobs.com during the dot com boom. Remember that, Jason? Everybody oh, yeah. was going to get rich, and so absolutely, I'm working for this dot com company, and I've got all these stock options instead of salary, and then. About April of 2000, the dot-com bubble burst, man, and, and everything's gone. So everybody takes their severance packages. And the problem is I'm in the Dallas partying scene still because I'm living in Dallas at the time. I'm in the Dallas partying and cocaine and club scene, and I've got this tremendous cocaine habit. And I know that I feel it breathing down my neck, man. This is one of those times when it's time to jump ship, and I know i got to get out of Dallas. So I moved to Washington, D.C. I didn't have a job. Didn't I had a place to live, a place to stay. So I packed up everything and moved, talked to my brother in Austin who, who loved politics too. And he, he said, you know, he, he, he was kind of stalled out in life in Austin. So uh, we both moved to Washington, D.C. in the fall of 2000, right during the same time as the presidential election in 2000, Bush and Gore. And, and yeah. so um, got into politics in D.C., work, got a job working in the United States Congress after a couple months there in D.C. Uh, and when I get to D.C., I, I have distanced myself from my cocaine supply. And my brothers told me that, Hey, look, man, you can't do those kind of drugs in DC. You'll, you'll, you'll ostracize yourself in DC. You know, drinking's fine, but stuff like the hardcore stuff like cocaine and all that, no one want to have anything to do with you. So I go to a place DC that I think that, Hey, if I just change my environment, I'll change everything and it'll be great. But the problem with that, Jason is wherever you go, there you are, brother. I mean, mm-hmm. you take yourself to the party every time. And uh, so D.C. is good, man. They, I, you know, get connected into you know, Washington, the Washington political scene. I get a job working uh, at a fundraising firm. After a little while in Congress, I worked for a fundraising firm. Then I get a job working for a guy running for president of the United States to raise his money all over the country. A guy named Dick Gephardt. He was mm-hmm. a congressman from, from Missouri in 04. Yeah. So I left D.C. and moved back to Austin. And Dick didn't last long in the race by January of 04 after the Iowa caucus. He was out, man, and I was out of a job. And so I took my fundraising donor list that I had built up over the years, and I moved back to Dallas, Texas, and got a job worker for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world, UBS, United Bank of Switzerland. And I was training to be a stockbroker there in 2004, in the spring of 2004. And that's when I was introduced to methamphetamine for the, most, for the first time by another broker at UBS. Mm. And that was a game changer, Jason. Tell us, tell us what that means, methamphetamine, and, and what, what started to transpire as you're using this. Oh, man. So meth, and this is what I tell audience all over the country, here's the deal. If you don't pay attention to anything I say in a presentation, remember this, that meth is the most evil, most destructive, most addictive drug ever created by man. And it is so addictive. I smoked that drug one time, Jason. I was instantly hooked. 
just like that. I mean, wow. I, and, and I couldn't give everything up away fast enough. The guy that gave it to me, you know, we go, we go down his parking garage, the parking garage. Cause he sees me sleeping at work one day. He says, come on down to the parking garage. You got something's going to pick you up. And so we get in his car and he has me this glass pipe with these crystal rocks. And I kind of freak out a little bit. I'm like, Hey man, what is that? He said, man, relax. It's crystal meth. He said, you'll love this stuff. And no truer words have ever been spoken, Jason. I mean, that was the truth. I fell in love with that drug. I couldn't give everything away fast enough. I gave up my job, my home, my car, my savings account, my tethering to God, my sanity. I went from working on Wall Street to living in the streets of Dallas inside of a year, man. That was it. That's all it took. That was my demise was fast on methamphetamine. And, and it does. I saw it destroy people left and right. And, man, I go from working on Wall Street to live on the streets. I mean, I've, I know what it's like to sleep on a park bench or behind the building and, and live in dope houses. I was bouncing around from one meth house to the next and with all these other meth addicts. And all we do is sit around and smoke meth all day long, hmm. talk about we're going to get higher and higher. But we had a fundamental problem with our operation. We don't have jobs and none of us are employable. So we steal, Jason. We do yeah. what addicts have always done, anything you have to do to get high. And so and that's where I got into the criminal side of things. Started breaking into cars, started breaking into storage units, and eventually it escalated to home burglaries, Jason. And, and you know, a home burglary, I always make it a point to talk about my victims. You know, the state of Texas has rules about a guy on parole. You can never, you can never associate with your victims. You can never apologize to them. I can never make an apology to my victims, so I don't yeah. because I don't want to violate the law. But I can tell you about the, the pain that I caused these people because I didn't just take these people's property. I mean, they did. They, they lost a lot of property, over a million dollars worth of property during the three years of the Uptown burglaries. That's what they called them, the Uptown burglaries, because yeah. of the part of Dallas that was being burglarized. But I stole something more important from these people, Jason. Man, I, I stole these people's sense of security. You know, right. there's, there's people in Dallas that lock three deadbolts now because of me, or they sleep with the lights on because of me. And, and they have to live with that for the rest of their lives. And, and so do I, you know, and, and I, and I hope they find peace at some point, but, um, I've tried to make it a point to always talk about, I can't apologize to them, but I can't talk about the, the pain that I caused so many people. And, you know, speaking of victims, Jason, I think the biggest victims who these people I can reach out to are my family, you know, families of addicts. You're a family member of an addict. Yes. You understand this. Uh, those are the ones that are hurt the most. They're affected the most. And it's almost like, and maybe you can relate to this. The family members of the addicts are addicts, too, in a sense that their addiction is their family member that's an addict. Yeah, um, that's right. My family was addicted to Damon West. My family was going to do everything they could to save Damon and, and, and help Damon. And, and it became something that consumed them. And I brought them through the pits of hell, through prison with me. I, I locked them up. Yeah. And so um, there's a lot of victims in my story, Jason. Damon, when you're going through... Um that time when you first get hooked on meth and you're really spiraling downward. I mean, you said within a year span going from Wall Street to the streets. Are your parents involved in your life? I think back to my dad and his his spiraling out of control and my my grandparents who aren't here anymore, but they were so hell-bent on trying to get him help and get him saved and sober and just recovered from all this and they couldn't do anything. They truly couldn't do anything. And it had to come to a point where they had to let go on some levels to allow him to go through what he had to go through to try and get to a place where he could get better. Tell me about the relationship with your family, with your parents. Cause you said you put your family through hell, but in the moments that you're going through it, are your parents there and are they trying to help you or are they kind of staying out of the way? Well, here's the deal. I was six hours away from home in Dallas, Texas. Uh, they're in Port Arthur. Yeah. Uh, so they know something's wrong. I've lost my job at UBS, and they're wondering what I do for work. They'll call me, and we'll talk, and I'll, I'll tell them lies, Jason. Oh, I can lie, man. Yeah. I can lie. I manipulate with the best of them. That's what addicts do, man. When we're in our addiction, we're very manipulative. We're very selfish, and so I would lie to them, tell them I had different jobs, and and uh, and they believed it for a while, I'm sure, but they knew something was wrong. But I mean, what are they going to do? Come kidnap me? And right. and uh, as this got worse and worse, I mean, there was longer lags than when we spoke. And when the lies didn't work, I just quit taking their phone calls. And, you know, um, I tell you, a pivotal day for me was July 30th, 2008, Jason. Mm. And I was uh, at this little rundown apartment where I was living in this little meth house. And I'm sitting on the couch smoking meth with my meth dealer, this guy named Tex. I'll never forget July 30th, 2008, man. And so I'm sitting there smoking with Tex, and I'm telling Tex, I think the end is near, man. I think the cops are going to come get me pretty soon. You see, about 10 days before this, this guy had been doing all these burglaries with this guy named Dustin had been picked up by the Dallas Police Department. So I know it's just a matter of time. They're putting the screws to him. They're going to get to me. 
And just as I pass the pipe back to text, man, I hear a window shatter off to my right, you know, psh, and tumbling across my living room floor is this little canister going end over end. And, and it starts to register what's going on. And I get up off the couch and I get over this thing and bam, this flashbang grenade goes off in my face, man. Bright white light, loud noise, blows me back on the couch. And when I came to, when I can see and hear again, there's a cop in full SWAT riot gear, man. He's got his boot on my chest and the barrel of a machine gun is digging in my eye socket. And the cop is screaming at me, don't move, don't move. And I look up at this guy and I blink and I'm like, man, don't worry, don't worry. And one of the cops that comes through the window screams out, we got it. We got the Uptown Burglar. And they did, man. They had me. That, that was the end of the Uptown Burglars. You know, about a dozen other meth addicts and myself, young and old, male and female, black and white, and everything in between, hmm. we indiscriminately, without reservation, broke in the homes of dozens of people to feed our insatiable meth habits. But on that day, the Uptown Burglars came to an end, and that's when they took me down to Dallas County Jail and, and, and put me into an environment that I was so unfamiliar with. And when I got a chance to call home, and because I mean I was scared, Jason. Inside of 24 hours, I was in my first fight over a breakfast tray in county jail. Mm. And when I called home, man, my dad, you know, my dad, I, he he knew something was wrong, but he wasn't expecting that because he had seen it on the news already. He'd been on the news back home where I live, and partly because of my dad, who he was in society in that area of Texas and in Texas in general. He's a big name sports writer, and so. Uh, you know, I call home and my dad is in tears, man. He's screaming at me, crying on the phone. Damon, how we go so wrong with you, man? How we mess up so bad? And and what could we have done different? And man, he's crying and I'm crying. And my mom gets on the phone. My mom's this nurse, man. She's used to traumatic situations. She's seen it all, right? And yeah. She's got this tremendous relationship with God. So she gets on the phone and she calmly tells me, she says, baby, listen, your dad has never been like this. I've never seen him like this before in my life. She said, but we need to have a serious conversation. She said, you need to understand that we love you unconditionally, Damon. There's nothing you could do to make us not love you. She said, that was the deal we made with God when he loaned you to us. She said, do you understand that, Damon? Mm. I said, yeah, Mom, I get it. I get it. And I'm, through the tears, I'm telling her, yeah, Mom, I understand you love me. I love you too. She said, that's good, baby, because we just gave you back to God. She said, there's nothing we can do for you anymore, Damon, unless you're now property of the state of Texas. Wow. And she said, I'll never forget what she said. She said, you are now a captive audience to God, and you better start listening. And then she asked me a question, Jason. She said, Damon, do you remember that prayer plaque that I had on your wall as a kid growing up? And Jason, my mom had a prayer plaque or a cross in every room in the house, brother. I mean, you couldn't escape God in this woman's home, right? So, <laughs> But she's asking me about the one in my bedroom growing up. And and I've been on this dope for almost four years, man. I, for four years, I've been you know out on meth, and my brain doesn't even fire right at this point in my life. And so I said, Mom, I don't know what you're talking about. She said, baby, it was footprints in the sand. She said, do you remember the story of footprints in the sand? I was like, Mom, I really – I don't. What are you talking about? So she patiently and lovingly retold me the story of Footprints in the Sand about a guy walking on the beach with God. She said they're watching a video play out of his life in the sky. She said and every time something good happened in his life, there's two sets of footprints walking side by side. She said, but every time something bad happened, when there's pain, there's hurt, there's suffering, there's loss, when he loses his football career, yeah. there's one set of footprints. And so the guy finally calls God out. She said, you know, he calls God out. He says, hey, God, what's up, man? Every time something good happens in my life, you're walking me side by side. But every time something bad happens, man, you abandon me. I can see it, man. One set of footprints. And she said that's when God laughed and said, Damon, you fool. Every time you saw one set of footprints, I didn't abandon you. I carried you, boy. She started screaming at me with her coach, Jason. Yeah. She said, baby, look down in that jail cell right now. There's one set of footprints. They're not yours. She said, get on God's back. I do not want to lose my son. And so, Jason, there was that moment. That I started talking to a guy that I pushed out of the car back in, two, in 1996, 12 years before that, when I got hurt in college football, man. But this isn't some kind of jailhouse conversion that happens overnight. This isn't the road to Damascus moment for me. Not by far, man. I'm an addict, and I'm still in my disease, and I still want to get high. Mm. Damon West is our guest here on the podcast, Sports Spectrum's podcast. The book is called The Change Agent, How a Former College Quarterback Sentenced to Life in Prison Transformed His World. So you're in prison and you're getting ready to go in prison here. Uh, and it said, and you say in the title of the book that it transformed your world. So take us back. I think it was January of 2010. You were telling me before, um, we started taping of going into prison and that first day you walked in and the emotions and feelings that you're going through and maybe even the state of mind that you in. Are you still using at this point? Are you, are you sober? Tell us about all that. No, these are good questions. So 
we to lead up to January of 2010, when I walk into the maximum security prison in Texas, uh, with, you know, you got to understand first that, you know, I spent 10 months in county jail. And right. yeah. at the end of 10 months, I went to trial. And Jason, I would pray every day and every night in my cell. I'd get on my bunk, get on my knees in my bunk, and I'd pray, God, get me out of this jam, man. If you do, you know, I'll be a normal guy again. I'm bargaining with God, right? I'm, yeah. I'm, like, like God waits for me to get up to run the universe in the morning, <laughs> you know? So, dear God, please get me out of this jam. If you do, I'm going to be a normal guy again. I'm going to get a job, and I'll just smoke meth on the weekends, God. You know, I'm, I'm making all these bargains. And, 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 Jason, I haven't touched a drug since I got arrested that day and was smoking that pipe on the couch when the SWAT team came in. And, and, yeah. and it wasn't for a lack of trying in the county jail. I, I looked around. I tried. I asked questions, but it never happened. And, and like, you know, to, to say – I've been sober almost 11 years. July, July 30th, 2019 will be 11 years sober. I mean, because I got brought into sobriety at the barrel of a gun, you know? Yeah. So I get to trial 10 months after my arrest in May of 2009, May 18th, 2009, man. I'm sitting there and the jury has listened to six days of testimony. And six days is a long criminal trial in Texas, man. And at the end of six days, the jury deliberates for 10 minutes on my punishment, Jason. Ten minutes, man. Mm. And I don't know how much law and order you watch, but if a jury's gone for ten minutes, they smoked you. Yeah. And so when I came back into the courtroom, the judge gaveled the courtroom back in and told me I was sentenced to 65 years in prison. That's a life sentence, Jason. So yeah. it's important to give that to perspective before I go into prison because 65 years, man, life sentence, it means I'm going to the worst part of the Texas prison system. Um, you know, when I got back to – you know. Right after getting sentenced, my mom and dad get one last visit with me. And my mom is the one who does the talking because my dad is in stunned disbelief. I mean, he's stoic. He can't even speak. And so my mom said, you know, she said, debts and life demand to be paid, Damon. And you just got hit with one hell of a bill from the state of Texas. Mm. She said, but you did the things they said you did. So you're going to have to go pay that debt. She said, but you owe a debt to your father and I. She said, we gave you all the opportunity to love and support to be anything you want to be in this life. We raised you in a giant melting pot of a city called Port Arthur, Texas, and gave you a great moral compass, which you did not use. So here's the debt you're going to pay to us. When you go to prison, you're going to get on God's back, and you're going to stay there, and you will not join one of these white hate groups, one of these Aryan Brotherhood-type gangs because you're scared because you're a minority in there. She said, you're not going to get any tattoos all over you. You're not getting a bunch of graffiti all over your beautiful skin. You're not going to do that. And so, Jason, I show guys all the time. At this point in the conversation, man, I show my arms and everything. I went to prison for almost a decade, man. I never got one tattoo. I told these guys in the joint, man, I can't get any tattoos. My mom said no, you know? Mm. And so – I went back to the pod that day in county jail and, and started asking questions of all the guys that had been to prison. How am I going to survive? And and every man, black, white, Asian, Hispanics, tell me the same thing, man. You're going to have to get into a gang, dude. You're 33 years old. You're gang recruiting age, and you're going to the worst part of the Texas prison system where everybody on your building has a life sentence. And you don't come off the life sentence building for five years. You stay there for five years so you don't escape. And uh, there was this one guy, though, this old black guy, and, and, and I call him Mr. Jackson. And Mr. Jackson— was a real positive guy. He'd been to prison four or five times in his 60s, you know. So he pulled me aside one day and asked me how I was, you know, how I was dealing with, you know, about dealing with all the knuckleheads and dummies. He said, talk about you need to get into a gang. He said, don't listen to them, man. He said, you don't have to get into a gang. He said, but prison's all about race. He said, so understand that going in. He said and that uh, you're going to have to fight all the white gangs first. And then if you survive all the white gangs, and he names all the white gangs off, you know, the Aryan Brotherhood, the Aryan Circle, the White Knights, the Woods. He said, you survive all that. You don't give in to their ideology of hate out of fear. You're going to fight all the black gangs, the Crips, the Bloods, Gangster Disciples, Mandingo Warriors. He said, you're fighting them all. He said, but you don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. He said, so don't think you got to win all these things. Just win by showing up. Don't ever not show up. Hmm. Then he gave me this analogy, Jason, that's important for me to tell you about before we talk about prison. And he said, West, I want you to imagine prisons like a pot of boiling water. He said, anything we put in this pot of boiling water is going to be changed by the heat and the pressure inside that pot. He said, I'm going to put three things in that pot of boiling water and watch how they change. A carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. He said, so first things first, if I put a carrot to that pot of boiling water, he said, what happens when you boil the carrot? I said, the carrot turns soft. He said, that's right. The carrot went into prison hard, but the water changed that carrot quickly. He said, the, prison, the carrot got beat, he got robbed, may have gotten raped, and he may have gotten killed. He said, you do not want to be the carrot in prison. He said, what about the egg, West? I said, well, the egg turns hard in boiling water, like a hard-boiled egg. He said, that's right. He said, the egg went in with that hard outer shell that protected him physically. The egg doesn't have the same fate as the carrot. Physically, he's going to be fine. But inside, the egg turned hard. His heart turned hard. 
He said, if you become that egg, you can stay in prison the rest of your life because you're not going to come back as someone your parents recognize. You'll be institutionalized. Eggs are incapable of giving and receiving love, he said. He said, but what about that coffee bean, West? And, and Jason, I didn't know. I had no idea what a coffee bean does. And he, would, uh, he, he joked around. He said, you know, for a college boy, you're not too smart, West. He said, the coffee bean changed the water to coffee. He said, the, the coffee beans, the smallest of these three things, small like you, had the power to change the entire atmosphere inside that pot. He said, everybody in life puts out energy, negative or positive. And whatever kind of energy you put out, you get back. He's, he's explaining the laws of attraction. He said, so, West, if you walk around that prison with a smile on your face and you let those dudes know they're not getting to you, he said, you will change that prison from the inside out. He said, and the best part about it is the other coffee beans in prison will find you because of your energy. Your mm -hmm. only chance to survive in prison without getting sucked in the prison culture of gangs and the life inside is to be a coffee bean. So the last thing he told me was to go out there and go be a coffee bean. He said, because when you get into that, that first prison pod, you get your cell assignment, he said, it's going to happen fast, man. He said, within minutes, if somebody's going to approach you, he said, the first guy that comes up to you, he's just coming to get information. He's not coming to hurt you. He said, but if that second guy comes up, he's coming to hurt you, man. He said, you put your fist in his mouth. Give him everything you've got. And with that, I was off, Jason. I was Jeez. off to face my biggest fears, man. And, it, and I got to this maximum security prison. You know, first of all, the bus ride to prison, man. So they shackle you up. You're chained to another man. You're handcuffed to another man. And they're just a big cage on wheel, these prison transport buses. And so that means you're chained to another guy for a 10-hour bus ride, maybe more than 10 hours. And that means if he goes to the bathroom, you go to the bathroom, number one or two. You know, he gets in a fight, you're in a fight too because you're chained to him. He fights you, you fight him with one arm. Man. Mm -hmm. And that's – I yeah. saw fights going on all over these buses. Every time you're on these things, it's chaotic, you know. And uh, you get to prison, they unshackle you, they strip you down, they body cavity search you, they poke you, they prod you, and, and man – they take your DNA, they run tests on you, and then after that, man, you're off. So your unit of assignment. My unit of assignment, Jason, was the Mark Stiles unit in Beaumont, Texas. And I don't expect everybody to know the geography of Texas, but Port Arthur, Texas, and Beaumont, Texas are neighboring cities. So I'm going home, which is good, man. This is a mixed bag. You know, it's good because I'm going to be close to home and I can be, reconnect with my family and see them a lot. But it's bad, Jason, because it's a Styles unit, and Styles is one of the roughest units in the state of Texas, man. It's one of the hardest prisons there is. I put Styles up against any prison in America. And uh, because of my sentence, because of my custody level, I've got to go to the worst part of the prison system and one of the hardest prisons in Texas. Yeah. But that's the way it's going to be. So when I get to prison, I get into my pod. I'll never forget my first cell assignment when I walk in. It's January 14, 2010. Walk in. And they give me the cell assignment of uh, seven building, which was a life sentence building, seven building, G pod, two section, three row, 45 cell bottom bunk. And that's it, man. I find my bunk right when I walk into that pod. It's huge, too, man. There's three tiers in this pod. There's cells all over the place, big numbers on the doors, guys all over the day room. Tables are bolted to the ground. Everything's bolted to the ground in prison at this level, man, because anything not bolted down is a weapon. And so I walk in, and the door's closed behind me, and it's just so loud, the echo of the sound of the door. And I look for my cell, and I find it, man. I'm on the third tier up by the showers. I'm as far away from that door as possible, man. So I, I set my bags down, put my back up against the wall, and wait. And it doesn't take 10 minutes, man. Here he comes, just like Jackson said. This little bitty white dude, man, he's coming up, and he's got tattoos all over his body, swastikas, lightning, lightning bolts tattooed everywhere. He's got no teeth in his mouth. He's got this meth mouth thing going on, hmm. and he's drunk. I could smell the alcohol on him because a lot of guys in prison drink the hooch, man. They drink that wine that they make out of rice, out of fruit, out of anything else, man. They just they make wine in prison a lot. And so this guy comes up, he's stumbling, he's drunk, and he says, hey, white boy, what family are you riding with? And a family is a gang in prison, Jason. Yeah. So I said, man, get out of my face, little dude. I'm riding with God, man. Just leave me alone. Just let me be, man. And he said, he laughed at me, Jason. He said, man, God didn't even hear, man. We kicked him out a long time ago. He said, but we're here, white boy. We're coming to get you, man. And he stumbles off, and I'm like, man, that didn't go well at all. And within 10 minutes, man, here he comes, my first test in prison. Biggest corn-fed white dude I've ever seen in my life, Jason. This guy is, is a mountain of a man. He's got muscles bulging out and veins rippling out of his arms. Hmm. He's got a big swastika tattooed on the top of his bald head, man. He's coming down the stairs. And so when he gets within range, I've, I, I've played sports all my life. I can be coached, man. When he gets within range, I hit that guy in the mouth as hard as I could, Jason. And within 20 seconds, that fight was over. That guy had me on the ground beating me down, man. Mm. My first test. And I, and I lost, man. I lost my fight, but I won by showing up. And I tell guys all the time, especially athletes, man, like, well, here's the deal. 
I went into prison and I got my butt kicked all over the place. I got in dozens of fights and I lost 75 percent of those fights, Jason. I, I was rare that I ever won a fight. But I won by showing up, man. I won because I got back up every day and kept going. And I learned a lot about myself from my losses because, you know, nobody's going to win all their fights in life. And and if you ever inspect a good loss, you can learn lessons from it, you know. But nobody inspects a good win usually, you know. And so I learned a lot about myself and I learned that I've been putting limits on myself, Jason. And part of the limits I put on myself is the, the, the fear, the terror I felt every time they roll those cell doors. And, you know, they're rolling for the go to the child, go to the day room, go to the rec yard. They roll the cell doors. And I was always so fearful of someone saying, hey, Wes, I want to look at you in the shower. And when someone says they want to look at you in the shower in prison, that's nothing gay, man. They're saying they want to go fight. You're going to box because you could fight in the showers. There's no cameras back there. There's no guards in blood. You clean blood out of the shower really easily, man. So I'm about six weeks into it, Jason. And and I finally get up one Monday morning with a plan. And and it's not a great plan, but. I look in this dingy old mirror they have in our cells, and the mirror is a piece of steel polished down, not a piece of glass. Glass is a weapon. And I tell myself this sentence that I heard one of these speakers that came whenever I was playing football in North Texas. One of these speakers said this sentence. said, if it is to be, it is up to me. And that's 10 words, 20 letters, the most powerful sentence in the English language because that's a permission statement, man. That tells you to get up and go do something. Yeah. And that was that morning I went up to the rec yard, man, and I made a choice. To, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna fight these guys, I'm gonna do it playing sports. Jeez, there's so much yeah. there. So tell me, so much. You say yeah, you say God. I mean, we only have you know a, a certain amount of time on the podcast. So let's try to you know, succinctly bring this to the place when you're getting out of prison. Because I think a lot of people are listening. And first of all, there's also a lot of people, and I don't care what faith you are. Mostly, this is a Christian podcast, obviously. But most people listening are going to start suddenly judge and be like. Man, you got to do your time. I don't. Why is this guy even getting let go? Sixty-five years you were sentenced to in prison, and you get an early, uh, you know, an early dismissal, I guess, if you will, to being let go out of prison. Tell us about sort of the moments when you find out that you're able to, you know, leave on. I don't know how you're able to leave or good behavior or whatever it was, and getting ready to to leave and kind of start life over being free from from prison where take us through those kind of moments those last you know months early years there at the end yeah no so in, in this so the transformation has to happen jason and i had to change my mindset and quit looking at pr- prison as a punishment yeah and start looking at prison as an opportunity and once the threat of violence was gone it took a couple months i started working on myself in three areas every day jason spiritually mentally and physically i got in shape man i got in shape my mind my body my soul and, and, and i changed my life i got into recovery in prison jason i learned a lot of valuable lessons in that and that helped me be the man that i am today and helped me be the man that i was in prison i learned that the secret to life was serving others and being humble man servant leadership and i learned that through recovery and i learned that through the different ministerial groups that would come in and have retreats with us in prison the volunteers that would come in from the outside world and, and spend t- days with us inside of prison. These men showed me what it was like to be a servant leader. Yeah. Um, I learned that there's only four things that I control in life. And those four things are what I think, what I say, what I feel, and what I do. And if it's not what I think, what I say, what I feel, what I do, then it's outside of, it's outside of my control and I have to let it go. Um, I learned how to be a, a better man in prison. I, I found ways to give back and to be a servant leader. You know, I couldn't go to college anymore because I had a bachelor's degree. But I, I got to get in down to the schoolhouse and tutor guys. I taught guys how to read, how to write, um, get ready for the GED test. I, I tutored guys in their college classes. I found ways to put back in the stream of life. And, and Jason, when my life changes over from being about Damon West to being about what can Damon West put back in the stream of life. And like I told you, I learned how to pray in prison. And, and you made a good point. It doesn't matter what religion you are, man. It, it, it's, this, this, this message is universal, man. This is about a spiritual awakening the guy had inside of a maximum security prison. You know, Dabo Sweeney tells me, he said, you bloom where you're planted. And yes. he told me after listening to my story, he said, you, you're you're the perfect example of that. You bloom where you're planted, man. You're planted inside the most evil, most inhospitable environment there is. And God, as you understand God, transformed you into something that was positive and useful for the universe. And, and when that transformation happened, Jason, when I became useful again, everybody took notice, including parole. And parole comes to visit with me on in... 2015, and the lady that interviews me, she's looking at my at all the stuff that I've accomplished while I've been in prison and the rehabilitation that has gone on. And she says, you know, it's a very impressive file. She said, I got one question for you. She said, if you could be remembered, Mr. West, for being anything in this life, 
give it to me in just one word, go. And I fired right back off at her because I had the answer already, Jason, because that's an easy question for someone in recovery, someone that's turned their life over to a higher power. I told her, I said, ma'am, I just want to be useful. I said, I can be useful in here as I've shown you from what I've done, and I'll be useful in here until y'all decide to let me go. I said, but I can be useful out there too. I've got a story to tell, and I've got a lesson, a, a warning for some and a message of hope for others. And, and I said, I want to go out and share this story with the world and see what kind of ways I can possibly impact society. I said, I've been a taker all my life. Mm-hmm. Allow me to be useful again, please. And they granted my parole, Jason. Wow. They gave me parole. They told me on November 16th, 2015, when they came to get me in that cell, they said, Mr. West, here's your one shot. You got one shot. Here's the deal. If you come back in handcuffs anywhere else in this country between now and 2073, we will keep you until 2073. Jason, I'm on parole the rest of my life, man. That means every month I go to my PO, I pee in the cup, I answer questions about my life, I show them a paycheck stub. You know, I've got I've got to be held accountable to a parole officer. But look, man, I, I've got I've got a, a program of recovery that holds me more accountable than anything, man. It makes me get right with the universe. It makes me get right with my higher power every single morning. And when I told you I learned how to pray in prison, I still say the same prayer that I learned in recovery, man. I went away from all those crazy prayers of, of what I want and what I think I need. My prayer is a two-part prayer every day, Jason. I get up every day and I say, God, put in front of me what you need me to do today for you. And man, let me recognize it when I see it. I don't want to miss that. And I don't pray for anything else, Jason, hmm. because I know that if I'm doing those things, if I am putting back into the universe the way my higher power, the way God, God's my higher power, the way God wants me to do, then I'm going to be okay. Everything I need will be taken care of. Maybe not what I want, but my needs will be met. Mm. And then as you get out, acclimating yourself back to society, what is that like? You know, trying to find a job and trying to, like you say, give back. I mean, there's, it sounds easy, right? I just want to be useful, but yet you still have this stigma of being on parole, of having gone to jail, of having all the 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 demons from the past even just kind of clouded over you. Your identity in, in so many other people's eyes is in what you did. How right. are you acclimating in yourself back to society? You know, it, it's that's a very good question, Jason, because I'm really uncomfortable in my skin when I walk out of prison. And but I have God has opened up a lot of doors for me. We talked about this prior to the podcast. So yeah. one of the things that happened when I was in prison is I did my own legal work. I wrote my own appeal and sent a copy of it to this guy named Walter Humphrey. Mr. Walter Humphrey is the head of the Provost Humphrey Law Firm. You see on my shirt where I work. Yes. And um, Mr. Humphrey read my, my legal work. This is years before I got out, three or four years before I got out. And he got back in touch with me. He said, man, Damon, you put together one hell of a writ for a guy that's never been to law school. He said, when you get out of prison, come see me. I've got a job for you. And Jason, I walked out on November 16th, 2015. And November 17th, 2015, I came into this huge prestigious law firm, one of the most prestigious law firms in the state of Texas, walk into this beautiful lobby in there, and I meet with Mr. Humphrey. And I'm sure he wanted to see what a guy that looked that's been in prison for almost 10 years looks like. You know, but I came out, I don't have any teardrop tattoos. I don't have any of the physical markings of a guy that's been both in addiction hardcore and in prison. Yeah. And he says, hey, look, man, I'd like to hire you. I'd like to give you a job. And, and Jason, today, to this day, I still work at the Provost Humphrey Law Firm. So getting a job out of prison, which is one of the biggest obstacles for guys coming out of prison, because I work with guys, men and women coming out of prison all the time, and job readiness and getting a job is a very tough thing for for majority of the population. I have been so blessed, Jason. And, and from that job, it almost gave me instant validity in society, and, and, it, and it got me to a point very quickly, it sped things up because now I've met with a judge, this guy named Judge Brad Burnett, and this law enforcement officer from the DA's office, a guy named Marcelo Malfino. They've both agreed to take me into schools locally and let me share my story with kids around the Golden Triangle, the area of Texas where I live. And, and it spreads from there, Jason. I mean, the story gets on, and, and one teacher tells another teacher, one administrator tells another administrator. And eventually I'm speaking to college football programs and the companies. And, and it starts out with Florida, University of Florida. Then it rises to other programs. And eventually it's Dabo Sweeney listening to my presentation. Hmm. And after the presentation's over, this is August 2017, he said, man, that's the most amazing story I've ever heard. He said, I've never seen my kids respond to you. They ask questions for 15 minutes. I mean, they everywhere I go, usually they have to shut the question and answer session down because it goes <laughs> on for so long. But he said, man, have you been to Alabama yet? And I said, no, I haven't. And I said, I've talked to Alabama, but I, I don't think they're going to let me in. They don't know who I am. 
He said, we'll see about that. I just texted Nick Saban from the back of the room and told him how my kids were responding to you. <laughs> he said, let me do something for you, man. Let me give you a quote or something. I said, that'd be great. Have, well, I'll put it front and center on my website. He said, pull out your phone. And this is before I knew about recording horizontally. Yes. Man. You can see this video on my Twitter, man. It's, it's vertical recording, right? This novice. And Dabo Swinney records 46 seconds that changed my world, man. Because he and he tells you know, hey man, we just had a speaker come talk to our team tonight. Most powerful story I've ever heard. And by the time I land in Houston, Texas, the next morning after my trip to Clemson, I've got a voicemail and a text message from the the uh, football ops guy at Alabama <laughs> saying, "Hey, we'll see you in three weeks in Tuscaloosa." That's and amazing. that was it, man. Dabo kicked in the door for me, and then so. Doors like that have opened for me, man. and these are God things, man. This isn't Damon doing all this stuff, Jason. I mean, you you you're around. You're you're the son of an addict, man. You know that when your your dad, we talked about when it, when his life started turning around, things started happening that were right in, the, in his life yeah. because he's putting back into the universe, and that's the way it works, man. Yeah. You've got to put back into this to get back out. There's such a fear, I think, though, too, from. There's two kinds of fears. So as a family, as a son of an addict, right, there was this fear, almost like my dad had to prove to me over a six month to a year to really a year and a half time frame that this was a real thing and it wasn't some temporary fix that was actually just going to spiral back into the same, you know, way that he was before. So there's that fear. Then there's the fear, I think, from the outside of just the stigma of somebody coming from prison, even giving them a chance. You said that's the hardest thing for so many people was to get a job coming out of prison and people are afraid to give them chances because they feel like, I'm guessing, a lot like I felt with my with my dad, that they might get burned. And so they don't want to, they want to see real transformation and change before giving them opportunities. And unfortunately, so many people can't change until they get the opportunities. I know I'm throwing a lot at you with what I just said, but what's your reaction to some of that, some of that fear that I think exists out there? Yeah, that's, that's totally true. Here's the deal, man. Look, I've had every advantage in life, Jason, and those fears are real for someone coming out of uh, incarceration. I mean, like, look, man, no matter what I'm doing out there, there's still people out there right now. There's a, there's a local judge out here in Jefferson County yeah. that, that has nothing but negative stuff to say about me, man. And, and I went to high school with this guy. I still can't figure out what his beef is other than the fact that he can't understand why people want to listen to an ex-con like me. And there's there's people in the, you know, there's people in law enforcement that have a, an issue uh, with what I'm doing because they don't understand why some, you know, quote unquote drug head like me could captivate an audience or have a, a good message to share. And, and I go talk to, to men and women that are coming out of prison all the time. I go into prisons too, because I think the prison is where I'm the most useful. I have the most, the biggest impact because yeah. I've got a unique currency with the incarcerated population because I bring them hope, Jason, I bring them hope because they can see in the flesh, someone that's turned it around and it, we all want to be accepted, man. We all want to get back out. 95% of the people locked up are going to get out at some point. And every one of them aspires to do something to where they don't have to come back to prison. No one wants to be in prison, man. That's a that's a that's an axiom. You can take that to the bank, you know. Yeah. But until you're given an opportunity, a second chance, another chance in life to do something, and you've got to want that chance too, Jason. It's like you said with your dad. You wanted to see six months, you know, to a year to prove it to him. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of proving that has to go on, and I tell. These men and women coming out all the time. I talk to parole groups sometimes, and, and I tell them that they're fresh out of prison when I talk to them, and it's their first day out. And I tell them, here's the deal. If you want something different this time in life, you got to do something different, man. you got to get outside of self and start doing something for others. And I, I ask them all to consider the fact that what you've been given is a giant negative, all right? You've got this ex-con label. We've all got it. I've got it, too. You've got this j- jacket on your back that says, I'm an ex-con. So how do you turn that negative into a positive? And I tell them all the time, if you are willing to share your story, own, first of all, own your mistakes. Own the stuff you've done. No one wants to hear about the guy that, well, I'm really innocent. Look, own what you've done. And then go out there and be willing to share it. You don't have to share it on the stage that I'm sharing it on, on a national stage with, with, with kids and, and sports groups and companies all over the country. Yeah. But share it to a local kid in your neighborhood that you see that's screwing up, man. Be willing to share that. Give that away. Be willing to put back into the stream of life. Because if you get out and you find a church to get involved, I tell people this all the time. I don't care what faith you are. Find a church. Get involved. If you're an addict. Go find a program of recovery because the most important thing to an addict is having a program of recovery and a sponsor and working the steps. 
then you've got something you're working with. When you get into your church, you get into your faith-based community, tell the person that runs the church, the pastor, the imam, you know, whoever it is, the rabbi, tell them that, hey, this is my background. This is where I've been. This is my mistakes. I own this. Can you find a way to make me useful? And I guarantee you, no matter where you are in America, you could be useful with your story, man. 80% of the incarcerated population have substance abuse issues. And I think substance abuse, Jason, affects every single person in this country, whether you are the addict, you're the person that the addict has violated in, in order to get high, the victim of the addict, yep. the family member of the addict, or you're just a taxpayer paying into an overburdened criminal justice system that has no clue how to handle the issues of substance abuse because we've had a war on drugs as a total failure. Addiction affects everybody in this country, and everybody coming out of prison has a story to tell. So true. Last couple questions here with Damon West. Thanks for telling your story here, Damon. This has been great. Your world has now entered into author, which is kind of probably interesting to hear <laughs> that because I've written a book too, and it's weird for me to pe- for people to say you're an author. But you are an author, and not only an author of one book, but really two books, a co-author of one of these books. So let's start. The book, I've mentioned it a couple times, is called The Change Agent, How a Former College Quarterback Sentenced to Life in Prison Transformed His World. It was released March 19th of this year. Tell me about the book process and and why write that book. I know I don't really need to ask you what's in the book because we've kind of just went through a lot of that, I'm sure, in what you wrote there. But tell me about why why write a book because it's one thing to tell your story and I can plant myself right into this exact same scenario as you, but it's another thing to write a book about it. So in prison, I kept a, a, a journal, you know, and it wasn't an everyday thing. It was just sometimes when I felt inspired, I'd write stuff down. We were mm. on a lockdown because the guy had just escaped in 2011. So I started, you know, putting together, hey, look, I'm going to write my life story. And and so I did. When I got out of prison, one of my fraternity brothers, a guy named Jeff Boyd in Manhattan, Jeff said, uh, hey, man, let me let me read that journal you got. So I sent it over to him and he read it and he said, hey, look, man, I've got a buddy that's a literary agent. He's in recovery as well. Mm. He said, do you mind if I share it with him? I said, man, I don't care. And so <laughs> the literary agent got back and touched me a couple of weeks. He said, where's the rest of this book? And I said, I laughed and I'm like, that's not a book, man. It's, there's not. I said, you know, it's not a book because the best chapters haven't been written yet. And so yeah. he said, you get those chapters written. Let's get this thing published. And so. When I became useful again, when I got a chance to plug myself back into the universe and I became useful and I had made the full turnaround back to useful citizen and I found love and I found the ways to be a normal guy again. And that's where the last chapter's end of the book. And I finally submitted it and it got published, Jason. I mean, I'm, I'm blown away with the response I've got. I thought it's somewhere, I thought everywhere along the way they were going to say, we need to bring a ghostwriter in. Yeah. Uh, they were going to say that your writing's good, but it's not good enough. But at every step, man, my literary agent, the publicist, the publisher, they're all like, man, where did you learn how to write like this? And I said, probably from reading books. You know, I read a book every other day in prison and I I probably absorbed some of that. So the book you've read, it's not linear, man. It it starts off and it goes back and forth. And maybe some of that's my ADHD, but the reviews I've gotten and the comments I've gotten from people – have just been great. I've been blessed. And the portion I've read, it's been fantastic. And I can't encourage people enough to get it. It's called The Change Agent. And then we had a second book, which was kind of bizarre. When I, The reason I stumbled upon your story was because John Gordon and I were talking on the phone about some different (laughs) things. John's a friend of mine. And he's like, do you know who Damon West is? You need to have him on your podcast. And I said, I don't know, Damon. Tell me the quick story. He gave me the cliff note two-minute story, which is impossible to do with your story. And he said, I actually co-authored a book with him. It's called The Coffee Bean, A Simple Lesson to Create Positive Change. And you've already kind of exuded the coffee bean analogy earlier in this podcast. I assume this book is a little more to do with that. That book, The Coffee Bean, releases May 21st, writing it with John, and it's a fable. And John, so many books that he's written have been fables that have impacted my life. Tell me how you came about Coming across with a guy like John, who's written books upon books upon books, one of the great authors in my life that I've read, and writing this book, The Coffee Bean. Oh, man, this this story, you talk about God things. This is, <laughs> this is the God thing, man. So I'm sitting at work one day last summer, to summer 2018. I get a phone call. It's John Gordon. Right? He said, hey, Damon, it's John Gordon. I'm like, and I'm I, – Have look, you read man, John's I, I, books? Yes, I've okay. read a couple of John's books at yeah. this point, but, I, but I, more importantly – I know who John Gordon. I'm a speaker, man. I, right. I'm a motivational speaker that's trying to break into the speaking market. Well, maybe break into is not the right turn of phrase, but I'm trying to mean. get into the to the speaker market. Yeah. And um, 
So I know who John Gordon is. I follow him on social media. I've read a couple of his books. And so he's like, hey, Damon, it's John Gordon. I'm like, John Gordon, how do you know who I am? He said, Dabo Swinney can't quit talking about you, man. He said, I was just with Dabo the other day, and he was talking about you and this coffee bean message. Mm. He said, Damon, he said, tell me a little bit about your story. So I told him, you know, I gave him the Cliff's Notes version. Like you said, it's hard to do. He said, here's the deal, Damon. He said, the next book I write, I want to call it The Coffee Bean, and I want you to write it with me. Not only that, but I want to split everything with you 50-50. Are you in? Wow. And I'm like, John, you don't even have to do it. And I try to talk him out of it, Jason. I'm like, John, you really don't need me for this. You're John Gordon. Right. He said, yes, but God's telling me to write this book with you, and so we're going to write this book. And I'm like, man, I'm not, I'm not anyone to argue with God or John Gordon. So <laughs> I was in. And, and it, was, it was great because here's the deal, man. John is a true servant leader in the sense that he's helped – my my definition of a servant leader is someone that elevates someone to a different position in life, helps other people out. Absolutely. He has helped elevate me uh, in his small time that we've been together and working together. And, and he's given me an opportunity to do something that I didn't know if I'd be able to do. So I got the first um, – I got the first installment from the uh, the publisher for the, our book, The Change Agent, and it was we split the the advance on it, and I got the first advance. My parents back in two thousand nine invested fifty thousand dollars in my legal fees hmm. uh, because they want the best for their son, and, and you know I ended up getting a life sentence, so I probably would have done just the same if I had represented myself. But they did it best they could, right? And they dropped fifty thousand dollars of their own money. They they're hardworking people. They're they're living on fixed salaries, fixed incomes now because they're both retired. My mom was a nurse. My dad was a sports writer. It's a huge chunk out of their retirement. And I always told them, one day I'll pay you back. One day I'll pay you back. But with this book, The Coffee Bean, I was able to drop about half of what I owe them in wow. one sitting. Yeah. And it, I, mean, I took the money John gave me and just turned it around and gave it to them. I don't – you know, it, that's cool. It, it's nice to have that kind of money come in, but that's not my money. That's my parents' money. Wow. So it was awesome. nice to be able to do that. Yeah. The book is called The Coffee Bean. The other book is called The Change Agent. I hope people go out and get both of them. I'm really excited to read The Coffee Bean, knowing not only this story and your story behind it, but also John's writing and putting the two together, man, this is going to be such a cool thing. I'm writing a leadership book as we speak right now myself. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into to both your books there, Damon, especially The Coffee Bean. Let's close it with this. This is the last question that we ask all of our guests here on the podcast. I'm really fascinated and curious to see what your answer will be. In your season of life right now, where the Lord has you, what is Christ teaching you? I know you're a Christian. This is a Christian podcast. So what are you learning from the Lord right now in this season of life? What's he been teaching you? Patience. Always teach me patience because here's the deal. I only control four things. I've told you about that. What I think, what I say, what I feel, what I do. Yeah. So many times a day, Jason, things have come up. There's more opportunities in my life, but there's also more things to think about when more opportunities come up. And I have to remind myself so many times a day, Damon, that's not on your line. That's on God's line. Leave it alone. Because the only things on my line are those four things, what I think, what I say, what I feel, what I do. And if I could say, what is the Lord teaching me is always to be patient and to be humble, man. Humility. Look yeah. at Tiger Woods, man. Look at yeah. what he did yesterday, man. Yeah. Everybody is around Tiger now and fascinated and loves the guy. You know why? Because he was humble, man. He got knocked down to the ground. He got up and dusted himself off. And through humility, he became the man he is today and turned something around. He is the ultimate coffee bean. Mm -hmm. And he's been the carrot and been the egg. But today, Tiger Woods is a coffee bean. And that's the thing about life, man. My thing, I always tell people when I'm leaving a presentation at the end, I have a call to action. I tell people, man, no, nothing is free in life. This presentation isn't free because my call to action to you is to go out there and go be that coffee bean. Just like Mr. Jackson told me to be before I went to prison. He is Damon West, the author and speaker and former college quarterback at North Texas University. Again, the book is called The Change Agent, How a Former College Quarterback Sentenced to Life in Prison Transformed His World. The other book coming out that he's co-authoring with John Gordon is called The Coffee Bean, A Simple Lesson to Create Positive Change, releasing May 21st. Damon, man, this has been great. Such a cool opportunity to talk to you. Your story is inspiring, and I know it's going to help a lot of people and, in essence, help a lot of people draw into God. I really think your story is a reflection of God's mercy and grace for all of us. So thanks for joining us here on the podcast. Jason, it's been my treat. I'm a big fan of yours, man. So it, 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 it's mutual. Trust Thank me. I'm, I'm happy to be here, man. Many thanks to Damon West. What an incredible story he has. Thanks to Damon for joining us here on the Sports Spectrum 
podcast. You can follow him on Twitter. He's at Damon West seven at Damon West seven. And his website is Damon org. D a M O N W E S T dot org. And it's interesting looking at his Twitter page and sort of his bio, it says recovering addict who uses his story of drug abuse, poor choices, criminal behavior, incarceration, and sobriety to serve as a cautionary tale and one of hope. And it's true. And and when you go his pinned tweet on his page is that video that he talked about in the podcast of Dabo Sweeney, that 40 second video, if you will, that he turned and, and filmed. It's it's tagged to his page from August of 2017 with Dabo Sweeney right on there encouraging people to check out his story. He's traveling all over the country and you can follow it all again at his website, DamonWest.org. And again, the two books, The Change Agent, How a Former College Quarterback Sentenced to Life in Prison Transformed His World. The Change Agent is available now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. That was released March 19th. And the newest book, He's co-authoring with John Gordon called The Coffee Bean, A Simple Lesson to Create Positive Change. I'm really excited to read that. That releases late May, early June. You can pre-order that now as well on Amazon. Many thanks to Damon West for joining us here on the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Incredible story. We also want to thank our sponsors, Compassion International, for sponsoring this podcast. They have some incredible stories as well of children being released from poverty. Isn't that what it's about? Allowing us, you and me, to make a difference in providing hope for a child in need. It's $38 a month. Go to compassion.com slash sports spectrum, food, education, medical care, vocational training done in the name of Jesus. Compassion.com slash sports spectrum. Check out the website, $38 a month. Sponsor a child today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sports Spectrum podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at sports underscore spectrum. Like our YouTube channel where you can check out a ton of videos on there and check out our website. Bookmark the website, sportspectrum.com, sportspectrum.com. Great articles, daily devotionals all day long on the intersection of sports and faith. Great articles there. And you can subscribe to our magazine for just $18 for an entire year. It all can be found at sportsspectrum.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time with a brand new episode of the Sports Spectrum Podcast. Love you guys. Have a great rest of your day.